0: Some years ago, the New York Times book review section quoted an Oxford University professor who had just written a brand new book about the history of Christianity. And that Oxford professor said this about Christianity, and I quote, I live with the puzzle of wondering how something so apparently crazy can be so captivating to millions of other members of my species. Well, I can't speak for every Christian out there, folks, but I do think I speak for many when I say the reason millions of other people are so captivated by Christianity and Jesus Christ is because they're convinced that it's true, that Jesus is who he says he is and that he did what the Bible claims that he did. Oh, but there's more. See, in that moment, when they chose to believe and to surrender their lives and to put their trust in Jesus Christ as who he is and what he says he did, their lives were radically changed forever. And I would love for that to happen to some of you here today and to help us. I want you to consider some of the evidence for yourself. I'm going to let you hear from an eyewitness today. You see, the five places that we have where you can learn the most substantial historical evidence about Jesus Christ, who he is, what he said, what he did, are found in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as well as the first letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians in chapter 15. So I want you to hear from one of these eyewitnesses today, Matthew. If you have a Bible, turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. And you follow along as I read this chapter. If you don't have a Bible, no problem. But I want to ask you if you would listen intently as I read this great chapter. Matthew 28. Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn... Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing is white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen. As he said, come see the place where the Lord lay and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And indeed, he's going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them saying, rejoice. So they came and held him by the feet and worshiped him then Jesus said to them do not be afraid go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee and there they will see me now while they were going behold some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened when they assembled with the elders and consulted together they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers saying tell them his disciples came at night And stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears. We will appease him. And make you secure. So they took the money. And did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported. Among the Jews until this day. Then the eleven disciples. Went away into Galilee. To the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they. Saw him. They worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the name of the Son and of the name of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded to you. And lo, I am with you always even to the end of the age, amen. Now, since Matthew is one of those eyewitnesses that saw Jesus on the earth both before and after his resurrection, I wanna ask Matthew three questions this morning that I hope will help you to wrestle with the person of Jesus Christ, who he is, what he did, And the resurrection, because the resurrection, my friends, is not tangential. It is not marginal to Christianity. The resurrection is what sets Christianity apart from other religions and is the proof that Jesus is who he says he is and did what the Bible claims he did. Here's the first question I want to ask Matthew. Is it possible? Is it possible the resurrection In other words, is anything supernatural like the resurrection of Jesus even possible in our world today? And has it ever been possible at any point in history? Now, I'm actually, I want you to understand what I'm doing right here. I'm actually posing a real question. Is it possible? A real question, because I want to point out a problem. I want to point out a problem with the way this question is sometimes used by people. There's a variation on this question and it sounds like this. How is that possible? And I hope you understand the difference of what just happened. Is it possible is an honest question that seeks additional information or evidence. While how is that possible is a rhetorical question that is making a statement in order to end the conversation. So I'm asking you to consider posing a real question, an honest question, because if you are here today and you've been guilty of, you're in that camp, how is that possible? You will never even move on to consider my second and third questions I have for Matthew today. I'm asking you to bring it back to, is it possible? Is it possible? Is it possible? And so I'm asking you to consider how Matthew answers this honest question, is it possible? And I think you can see Matthew's answer in verse two where he uses the word heaven. Look at verse two again, if you have a Bible. And behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven, came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. And his countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. In other words, folks, Without apology, Matthew gives us a supernatural account of the resurrection that involves heaven, an angel, earth-shaking power, and oh, by the way, an angel whose face was flashing like lightning. And so to believe in the resurrection, you do have to be open to the supernatural And willing to investigate further. And let me push back against what some of you might be thinking right now. About that word supernatural. Don't step into the trap my friend. Of pitting science against Christianity and the supernatural. I hope you realize science will never be able to explain some of the most important things about Us and our world. Because everything that matters most cannot be measured in a test tube or graphed out onto a chart. If you were honest, you'd have to admit that. Everything that matters most to us cannot be measured in a test tube or graphed out onto a chart. Dr. Francis Collins might be a name that you're familiar with. Served as the director of the Human Genome Project that involved 2,000 scientists who worked together for 15 years. And he headed this up to map out the entire sequence of all 3.1 billion letters that comprise the amazing digital code of our human DNA. Quite a feat. And he headed that up, took 15 years, our God did it like that. Took them 15 years with 2000 scientists to map out the 3.1 billion letters of that DNA helix. So he's not a stupid man. Could we all agree on that? This is not a stupid man. And he's not given to making decisions that are based on nothing. But his life was changed forever. When he moved Christianity out of the category of that's just not possible. And into the category of, is it possible? Is it possible that Jesus is who he says he is and that he did what the Bible claims that he did? He started asking, is it possible just like he would regarding any other important question in this world that he would investigate. See, he says this, quote, I didn't believe in God, nor did I want to consider the evidence. That kind of faith seems superstitious and irrational. But one day, and I hope this encourages you folks, you don't have to be as smart as someone else to offer them the hope of Jesus. That's really good news for a lot of us, right? It's not like unless my brain power matches theirs, don't even bring up Christianity, you're gonna lose. Folks, that's not how it works. He was making rounds in the hospital as a young medical doctor. And he checked on an older woman that had advanced heart disease and she took a moment before he left the room to share with him her personal faith in Jesus Christ, her personal relationship with him that had changed her life and brought her into a right relationship with the God of the universe. And then she looked at him and simply said, I've shared with you what I believe. What do you believe, Dr. Collins? I know that sounds simple. I tell you all the time, ask questions. He says, in that moment, Her question shook me. Her question shook me. Because he says, quote, I realized I had work to do. After all, I was a scientist, right? I wasn't supposed to come to conclusions without considering evidence, but I had never done that for the question of God. And so at 26 years old, Dr. Francis Collins, for the first time in his life, he asked the question, Is it possible? And he began to investigate for himself like he would any other area as a scientist, the claims of Jesus Christ and the claims of Christianity. And that investigation led him to a personal faith in Jesus Christ that changed his life. So that now, more than 30 years later, He says, after 30 years of being a scientist and being a Christian, he was able to continue to do both, of being a scientist and being a Christian. He says this, and I quote, science is powerless to answer many of our deepest questions, such as why are we here? What is the meaning of life? And what happens when we die? Those questions can only be answered by faith. I'm simply asking some of you perhaps to make this decision today. Would you just be willing to move Jesus Christ and and the claims of Christianity out of the category of, how is that possible? And into, is it possible? Is it possible? But now here, that leads to my second question that is just as important. Number two, but is it true? Just because something's possible does not mean it's true. And so to answer that question, Matthew gives us three pieces of evidence to consider. Now look at me. This is not all the evidence there is to consider, my friends. This is not exhaustive. But Matthew chooses to give us three pieces of evidence to consider as to... But is it true? The first is how he records the existence and admission of a plausible counter-argument for the resurrection... That's what's going on in verses 12 to 15, I hope you realize, where Matthew actually tells us that the religious leaders bribed the Roman soldiers who were guarding the tomb and told them, tell everyone that the disciples came to the tomb at night. Now Judas had killed himself, right? There's only 11 of them. Folks, this this is pretty ludicrous to consider. They were scared and scattered. Peter has denied him three times with cursing these guys are not Oceans 11, right? That are gonna pull this off. But this is the claim. These 11 disciples, one of them ran naked, it says, Mark. These 11 disciples came at night, overpowered Roman soldiers. Oh, by the way, in that day, if whoever you were asked to guard escaped, you were killed. So they were pretty serious about this job. That's why it needed to be a large amount of money for them to spread this story. They said, here, here's this money, spread the story that the disciples came and stole his body away. And that's why it says, and if word comes to the governor, see if word had come, they'd been in big trouble, we'll appease him, we'll take care of it. Now why would Matthew include this information and give us this record? I'll tell you why because it actually happened. You say, Brad, what's your point as far as proving the resurrection and the credibility of the Bible? I'll tell you what it proves. It's more evidence that Matthew is actually telling the truth because if you want to fabricate a story, if you want to concoct some kind of hoax and pull one over on people, you do not. You do not give a plausible counter argument. William Proctor, a former New York Times Daily reporter, says that one sign of accurate, truthful reporting is when the article includes plausible other arguments. Matthew's not afraid to tell you the truth, the whole truth, because he was not writing fiction. He was not trying to fool people. He was giving us a truthful and historical record of what actually happened. But consider the second piece of evidence he gives us. Secondly, Matthew points out the existence of women and other eyewitnesses who saw Jesus alive. In fact, Matthew says the first people to see Jesus alive were two women, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James. Now maybe you're thinking, Brad, why does that matter? I'll tell you why it matters. Because in that culture, folks, The testimony of a woman, the testimony of a woman was not even admissible in a court of law. She couldn't own property. She couldn't testify in court. It was not admissible in the court of law. So recording that women first saw the empty tomb and they're the ones that began to go and spread this good message would have been a huge mistake if you are trying to perpetrate a fiction and pull one over on people. You wouldn't do that. And yet all four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, record that women were the first to find the empty tomb, to see him alive, and to begin to spread the good news. Why? Because it actually happened that way. But let me show you the third piece of evidence Matthew gives us. And it's what happened to this little band of disciples and the change that came over them after they saw Jesus alive again. Because it launched the incredible spread of Christianity that is unlike any other religion. The pace at which it spread, how it appealed to all cultures is unlike any other religion, my friends. And it's worth noting how how Matthew puts the great commission, go therefore and make disciples, right up against, right next to the resurrection, because without the life-changing power of the resurrection, no one would have been willing to risk their lives to spread or promote this new message of Jesus as the only hope for all of mankind. They were living in a day that Caesar was Lord and to declare that anyone else was Lord led to death, but they were willing to declare this message of Jesus is Lord in a very polytheistic day. It was not a non-spiritual day. Lots of gods, as long as you never said there's one God, as long as you were not intolerant, like people say today, and say there's one way, and yet they did, why would they risk to promote and spread this message. When Jesus looked at them and said in Matthew 28, 19, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, no one but Jesus could have imagined, could have imagined the impact that this little group would have and how quickly, quickly Christianity would spread all over the world. In fact, historians, I hope you realize, historians today still wrestle with how this scared and scattered little group of disciples could have turned the world upside down. Because please know, early in Jesus' ministry, thousands followed him. Towards the end of his ministry, before he was crucified, folks crowds had turned away and were no longer following for the same reasons people turn away today. He did not come to just be the bread king. He wouldn't just keep multiplying bread and feeding 5,000. They were interested in having their immediate desires satisfied, but this message of take up your cross and follow me, this message of die to yourself, this message of I am Lord, they were no more interested in it than human beings are today. There were not large crowds following Jesus at this point. In fact, only 120 disciples gathered in the upper room after his death. So, how in the world did Christianity spread so rapidly? History shows, history shows. This group of Christians had no educational capital, they had no social capital, they had no financial capital, and they were not backed by a list of who's who and all the right people. In fact, the early Christians were mostly comprised of outcast and marginal people, but in 200 years, they swept the Roman Empire and became the dominant influence and religion because it was changing lives and turning the world upside down. One historian at Yale says this and I quote, the more one examines the various factors which seem to account for the extraordinary victory of Christianity, the more one is driven to search for a cause which underlies them. It is clear. That at the very beginning of Christianity, there must have occurred a vast release of energy, unequaled in the history of the race. Without it, the future course of the faith is inexplicable. Do you hear what he's saying and do you understand what he's doing? He's bumping right up against the edge of the supernatural. And yet he doesn't want to say it because he doesn't want to get it kicked out of the historian's country club... He's saying, I'm trying to be reasonable here. I'm trying to stick to the facts. But what could account for this kind of growth? What could account for this kind of power? Because it is unparalleled in all of history and simply inexplicable. I'll tell you what, it's what we're celebrating today. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John fill in the blanks for our historian The resurrection was that vast release of energy and power that transformed a simple group of fishermen into bold proclaimers of the message and hope of Jesus Christ. And so here's the question that I really want each of you to think about today. Question number three for you. So what should you do if you think Jesus Christ might be who he says he is. And Christianity just might be true. What should you do? Because I know some of you might be thinking right now, okay, I see some credibility, Brad, some evidence to the message of Christianity resurrection, but what if I still have doubts, Brad? What if I still have doubts? What if I'm not absolutely sure? Do my doubts rule me out? I mean, Christianity is is all based on faith. Having some doubts, does that rule me out? Well, if that's you here today, and I imagine there's many who might be in that category, here's what I'd like you to do. Start by doubting your doubts. Would you just start by doubting your doubts? In other words, I want you to be skeptical of your own skepticism. If you have not yet carefully and personally, don't parrot it and quote someone else, carefully and personally examined the claims of Jesus Christ and the evidence for his life, death, and resurrection. If you don't wanna believe in Christianity and Jesus, you have that right, my friend. But please don't just roll your eyes, shrug your shoulders, and laugh at it until you've taken time yourself to read all four gospels and to consider digging into some of the other sources that confirm the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and then know this you're not in a special horrible category you're not the first to doubt and here's what I also want you to understand our culture is not the first culture not the first century to be skeptical either. Here's what I hear sometimes people say, and it's wrong. Oh yeah, those people back then, they all believed in Jesus Christ and Christianity because they're so gullible. They believed in things like that. No, they didn't. Look at verse 17 again. When they saw him, they worshiped him. Three words for you. But some doubted. But some doubt it. I hope those are three really encouraging words to some of you. You're not the first to doubt. And our century is not the first one to be skeptical of the supernatural. You know, sometimes even I'll hear this. Oh, if Jesus would just take on flesh again and show up at Florence Mall and play with the kids on the carousel and take one burrito and feed everyone in the food court and throw in beverage, take one Diet Coke and quench everyone's thirst. I would believe, everybody would believe. No, they wouldn't, they would not. I hope you realize that. As Jesus swung on the carousel, laughing with children and everyone's eating burritos, they would not all believe my friends. And so right here in verse 17 is more evidence that Matthew is telling the truth and not trying to fool people. That's why he gives us this information. Some doubted. I think there's another reason that he includes this, but some doubted. And that's because as human beings, we need to be reminded, friends, that all the evidence in the world, all the evidence in the world can never bring a person to absolute 100% certainty. Now, if you don't agree with me, let me explain a little further. Here's what I'm asking you to do. Start by doubting your doubts. And then secondly, I want you to do this. Make a decision about Jesus the same way you make other important decisions in your life. I think people can be guilty of putting Christianity and Jesus in a different category and not even approaching it the way they do other areas of life. Here's what I mean. Here's what I mean. Does anyone who's ever married another person, some even you know where I'm headed, truly know that person like you're going to know them after you've been married to them for years. Does anyone who's ever hired a person to fill a key position truly know that person, regardless of the careful interview process, regardless of how thorough you seek to be, regardless of how many references you call do you truly know them like you're going to know them when you start working with them day by day at close range and does anyone who's ever made a decision to surrender their life, trust Jesus and follow him truly know him like you will know him after following him For years. Hope you realize the answer to all those questions is no. So how do you make important decisions in life? Folks, after a careful investigation, whether it's marriage, investments with your money, hiring process, you move forward based on the information you have. Because there will always be a gap between 100% certainty and the evidence or information you have. Always, always. So don't say, oh, I would believe if I could be 100% absolutely sure. The reason I hesitate, the reason I hold back is I don't have that 100% certainty. Friend, you don't do that in any other area of your life. Whether it's who to marry, who to hire, where to invest your money, At the end of the day, you make decisions through a process that always involves the objective and the subjective, the intellectual and the personal. Because after all of your analysis is done and you've gathered all the information you can and the dust settles, you still have to do something. And for most of us as human beings, it is a very frightening thing that you have to do. You have to make a commitment based on what you know. Not everything you wish you could know. Listen to me. Reason or intellect can bring you to a place of probability. But only commitment can lead you to the place of certainty. I wanna go back to marriage and illustrate to you what I'm talking about. After 32 years now of being married to the same woman, I am convinced 100% absolutely certain that my wife Vicky is the one for me. But that certainty has come on the other side of a commitment I made 32 years ago with a full head of hair. When I said I do, and trust me, I knew far less than I do today. It's the commitment I made then and have continued to hold on to that has led me to the place of certainty I have now. Commitment. You might not want to hear this, but folks, here's the deal. You will never be sure until you make a commitment to Jesus with your whole life because Jesus calls us to give him our life, not just our intellectual assent. And could we be honest? That's what scares us so much. That's what unsettles us as human beings so If you were to be honest, could you maybe agree? It's not that you need more evidence. It's not so much that you wish you had more evidence. It's that you wish this decision about Jesus did not involve a total life commitment. He calls us to die and follow him call him Lord. Turn over control of our lives. That's why most people hold back. I've worked with many people through the years as a pastor trying to give them books and trying to help them navigate. What are your objections? What are your objections? Don't hear me saying there's not a place for some of that. I'm glad Christianity can show you good stuff but I find that once you show them one thing they just bring up another thing and one thing and another thing and another and I've had so many people who've come to faith in Christ after years later tell me Brad I always knew what it really was. It wasn't that I needed another book. It's that I didn't want to give up control of my life. At least they had heard Jesus' message right. At least they had understood Christianity correctly. It's not lack of evidence. It's fear of letting go and losing control of our life that keeps most people Holding back. I want you to bow your heads as we close. Because I want you to take a moment right now to think about what you've heard. And the decision that you need to make about Jesus and the resurrection. Because I hope you realize every one of you has to make a decision about Jesus. Your mom and dad can't do it for you. Your best friend can't do it. Grandma can't do it. I can't do it. And I hope you realize to simply put this off and say, I'm not going to deal with that now. I'll deal with that later in life is a decision. That is making a decision. Oh, come to Christ today. Come to Jesus today. Believe that he is the son of God who did what the Bible says. He died the only perfect death in your place as payment for your sins. And when he rose from the dead, he conquered sin and hell and Satan and death forevermore. That whosoever will may come. Whoever believes in him surrenders to him bows to him and says, yes, Lord Jesus. I know there's a measure of fear in thinking about surrendering your life and following him, but oh, let me tell you what is on the other side of that decision. You will have forgiveness. You will have a sense of being clean and right and a hope like never before. In the face of unsettling circumstances, because you'll have a hope that's fixed in something outside of this world, someone outside of this world. You'll have a peace and a joy that's grounded in something deeper than your circumstances. And you'll have a sense of being loved and accepted by someone who loves you like no one else in this world can love you. If you'd like to become a Christian today and you'd say, I am ready to make a decision to surrender my life to Jesus and believe in his life and death and resurrection, then I ask you to simply pray this prayer after me. You don't have to give any money to this church. You don't have to shake my hand. You don't have to get up and walk down the aisle. Just pray this simple prayer after me. God sees your heart. And say, dear God, I know I am a sinner. I fall short. I could never earn my way into heaven. I could never consistently please you. I believe. I believe that Jesus did for me what I could never do for myself in satisfying your holy, righteous demands in my place that he sacrificed himself for me, that I might be free, that I might be forgiven, that I might be your child in relationship to you. Oh God, have mercy on me. Save me because of Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.